Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about innovation, insights, and what's coming next. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. If you're interested in learning about how to grow your business, about trends, or anything we talk about, go to our website at sparkpartners.com. And if you're listening to our show or watching our show, you know that one of the biggest topics we always discuss are trends. And we oftentimes get asked whether or not something is a trend or a fad. And so what we thought would be fun today is if we went through some some rapid fire type questions uh, and ask here, ask Adam about if something is a trend and or a fad. And then after that, we can kind of do a deeper dive into what's the, the true difference. So Adam, let's do this. I'm going to ask you about 10 different things and you're going to tell me whether or not it's a trend or a fad, nothing else. And then afterwards, we'll come back and do a deeper dive and dissect a couple of the, the, the good ones and discuss why you chose one or the other. Okay. Are you ready to roll? I'm ready, Manny. All right, here we go. Number one, cyber attacks. Definitely a trend. Uh, the increase in pet adoptions. Fad. Cryptocurrency. Fad. Microbreweries. Who? Um, trend. Electric cars. Trend. Car shortages. Fad. Four-day work week. Trend. Semiconductor shortages. Fad. All right. So let's go from that, Adam. Uh, that was really good. And uh, I agree with most of what you said, I think, uh, if not all. And so let's dissect a couple of those that are the most interesting. So the first of which is, of course, in the news uh, over the weekend, there was a, a big cyber attack. And, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, there was a, a Swedish uh, supermarket that had to shut down because their cash registers weren't working. Uh, so let's talk about that. Is that going to, you said it was, a, it was a trend. Tell us why and maybe add to it how uh, businesses can prepare for that. It's a, it's a trend because it started uh, about a decade ago. It's accelerating, and we see nothing standing in the way of that continued acceleration. It has a high payoff for the participants, and the victims are doing precious little about it. So there's nothing really standing in the way. Um, ever since the book The Cuckoo's Egg was written in the 1980s or 1990s, we've had a problem whereby the laws don't really do much to criminalize or, or endanger people who break laws around uh, digital security. And that's just accelerated now because we've gone from personal computers and mainframes and a few networks to the, you know, the Internet and everybody being online all the time using uh, semi-smart devices. So there's really nothing in the way of the criminals to stop doing this. They can keep doing it. The, the only retaliation right now that's even on the board is that if uh, Biden, uh, the president of the United States, threatened Putin, the president of Russia, saying if you don't make your guys stop, then we're going to basically retaliate because we have our own hackers that could go after shutting down your uh, electric plants, et cetera. Uh, you know, a cyber war, you know, is that going to happen? It's got a probability, that's for sure. But that's not a solution. You're not going to stop it. So the reality is, is that you need to be very, very aware that, that cyber uh, attacks are normal. You should be aware that they're going to come at your phone and your laptop uh, and your computer and all your devices on a really regular basis. You need to get yourself and all your employees wise as to what these things can look like. And you need to be sure that whenever you're working on networks, you know what network you're working on and you know that it's secure. And that you talk about the security issues and how to protect yourself. 
including how to have proper backups, how to know the data, how to know, isolate if you've been breached, all those kinds of things. Uh, it's sort of like back in a time before everybody had laptops and we're sort of, how do you prepare to have a laptop and use it in the office? And we used to worry about, well, if you've got a floppy disk drive in your computer, somebody could make a copy of a file and take it home. That was right. sort of the early days of cybersecurity, right? You could just yeah. copy the files and take them home out of a drive. We got through all of those kinds of issues. It's now accelerated. It's now stronger than ever. And everybody really needs to pay attention to this because even if you're a small business, if you're if you're uh, if, if you get shut down, it could hurt you. My son, who was a graduate school, uh, had a cyber attack on his um, on the uh, the lab where he worked, and they locked down the computer and all the data. So for all these people that were in this lab and PhD candidates. They were quite, quite fearsome of whether or not they would get their data back without having to pay wow. some kind of ransom. So you don't have to be big to be attacked. If anybody they think they can get money out of you, they're likely to do it. And it's remarkable how much data we accumulate. You know, I was looking at our file system, Adam, the other day, and you know, we've only been working together a year and a half here, but we've accumulated about 450 so files. Just over the past year, and then we're not even really uh, adding a lot to that. I mean, it's just, it's amazing how much that we accumulate without really knowing that we're doing. So we're just, you know, running our computer, doing our things, saving things to that hard drive, and eventually uh, you're amassing all this data that, of course, is backed up on the cloud, which gives uh, a potential threat uh, situation if somebody gets access to it. Right. Right. But again, I want to caution all small businesses out there. If you're taking credit card information, if you're a contractor and you're uh, using Square or some other tool, you know, uh, PayPal to take it to take uh, payments in the fintech world, you need to be aware that those credit cards are given to you uh, as a form. You know, people assume it's secure. Do you know it's secure? Have you asked if it's secure? These are things that we didn't have to worry about a decade ago so much, but they are everyday ways of life. And you need to think about it. You need to think about it as a business and you need to think about it as a consumer. You know, when you log on to a network, are you passing around private information, private files, credit card information, social security numbers, etc.? I know I get on my phone, on my office phone, on my personal phone, I get hit at least a couple times a week with weird stuff that comes through text. I get emails every single day of people trying to c convince me to click on a link that they shouldn't click, I shouldn't click on. And, right. and as you know, Manny, we're, we're small businesses. So everybody's got to be aware of this and everybody needs to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we go into the, the next couple of uh, trends and fads, uh, let's discuss how to measure something against whether it's a trend or a fad. What are we looking at? What are some of the metrics that we use here to, uh, to see if something's a trend or a fad? You look to see is how long has it been happening and is it increasing? And predominantly, you look for it to increase in an exponential rate. If you're an engineer like you and I, we were taught how to use log scales which is the theory is that every growth is uh, the grow of 10 times is the same. So going from one to 10 is the same as 10 to hundred is the same from hundred to a thousand. turns out in the world, that's pretty much true. You know, once something, that's why we say that there's this exponential explosion. You don't notice it when it's small going from one to 10, maybe not from 10 to hundred. Then when it goes from hundred to a thousand, we suddenly say, Oh, look, what's happening. That's really the way the world works. It's the way we, we see people get excited about new products, get excited about new uh, celebrities, that kind of thing. So one thing we look for is this sense of logarithmic performance in terms of uh, the trend. The second one is that how does it hold up over time? You know, is it continued? Does it continue to go up? Is it con consistent and continuing to go up? And number three, is it solving a problem? 
right? Is it helping somebody solve a problem? Uh, or is the underlying underpinning of this uh, solving a problem? So, for example, in case of cybersecurity, cyber attacks, uh, the criminal's problem is you can't get into a getting into a bank to get cash yields very little. Why? Because no, we don't carry cash anymore. The money all exists as bits. They're just little dots, ones and zeros in computer software. And so, therefore, they the continuation of their business, being a, being a bank robber, is to go down the road of the cyber attack. Right. So, uh, speaking of, of uh, banks and currency. Uh, we, we've had an entire podcast on the topic of cryptocurrency and that you've got people on both sides of the aisle saying that, no, it's a fad. No, it's a trend. Why do you believe that, that cryptocurrency is a fad? Because the only existing, uh, with one exception, the cryptocurrencies today are cryptocurrencies that are unregulated, uh, that are based upon some people solving some arithmetic problems in order to generate the tokens. And they're trying to say that just because there's a limited number of tokens, there's value to those tokens. And I always say, well, that's sort of like Pokemon cards. The manufacturers of Pokemon cards determine how many of each card and each type was out there. How much they're worth is up to the people who own them. Now, it's one thing to be playing a game and you want a Pokemon card. Art's the same way. How much is the art on a piece of wall worth? Is it $100 or $100 million? Well, it all has to do with supply, demand, and what people think about it. The issue is, is that in both of those, the Pokemon, you play a game. In the case of art, I can hang it on my wall. And when I hang it on my wall, it relates to history, the art of history, and all those uh, things that people would care about. There is nothing to a cryptocurrency of any value. It has no underlying inherent value. It is just bits of ones and zeros that mean nothing to people. But they've sort of like, you know, back to the days of the Polynesians when they would exchange stones. And the larger the stones, the more it was worth. Why? Well, because it was harder to move those stones. But they imbued the stone with, as a currency of value. I own that big stone, and therefore I'm a very rich man. Why? Well, because they just decided that would be the basis of their transactions. You have nobody deciding this right now other than criminals and people who are making tokens. So the people making tokens want the value to go up, so they talk it up over and over and over again. The criminals like it because it's a way that they can exchange an illegal activity without being traced right now. But it doesn't really solve any other problem, right? It, it, it really has, there's no inherent value to what, they, what, a, what a Bitcoin or a Dogecoin does. And that's why all you need is Elon Musk to send out a tweet and one day saying, hey, I just bought some Dogecoin, and the price can go up. You know, double, triple, four, five x. You know, just you because think there's there's no underlying value, so it can just go up or down at the whim. Do you think that there's going to be a um, cryptocurrency, a getting, a reckoning, if you will, of you know all these uh, these issues just falling to the ground, all these these skyrocketed, you know, these valuations that have gone super high, they're going to fall to the ground. Sure, the U.S. government could issue a crypto dollar. You could have the Europeans issue a crypto euro. Um, as, you, as you go to that direction, all the issues you want related to use of a digital currency are solved. The second thing is once you have that digital currency available, it's quite easy to make the other currency illegal. Or, you know, say the unregulated currencies are illegal. Or you put them into regulatory structure. You say that trading Bitcoin is the same as trading euros or trading yuans. That would effectively kill the Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum wave because there would be so little need for it except for transactions between criminals. And therefore, there would be way more of them than anybody needs. And you'd have to figure out if they want to keep doing it that way or they want to go back to the old barter system of I'll trade you guns for dope. 
so that's why I say that there's just still there's no real underlying need for this other than a criminal need. Uh, and that criminal need is certainly not large enough to justify uh, the current value of all summed up cryptocurrencies. Exactly. So do we have a, a way to, to measure the propensity of something to be a trend and, and how far along something is in a trend? Like the idea of electric cars. Uh, certainly they've been around for a long, long time. We're now to the point where it's crossed over from being a fad to being an obvious trend. We uh, went through the metrics just a second ago on how to test that. But do we know how strong that trend value or trend pool is for electric cars? Is there a way to measure that? Yes. Yeah, so again, what we look for is adoption rates. How you know, and, and what you want to do as a trend caster, somebody like us or somebody that's in a corporation who's trying to do long-term scenario planning, is you're looking for that 1 to 10. You know, you want to get that early wave. So saying, wait a minute, I'm seeing some pretty serious adoption rates here. You know, but they're, but they're in small numbers. They're in small numbers, so they're easy to ignore. But but they're they're actually happening at, at high rates. The second thing is they're solving a very real problem, and and if it solves several problems at the same time, then you know you have a trend on board. So for example, you know, electric cars. Well, what is you know we saw high adoption rates with the hybrid cars like the Toyota Prius. But whenever the, the first electric cars came out from um, uh, Tesla, we saw that even though it was a two-passenger car with only a limited 70-mile range, he sold 100% of what he made. And that was really a crucial element. He, made a, he sold 100% of them. It wasn't like he made, it didn't matter if he made 100 or 500, he sold them all. So that told you there was a serious underlying pent-up demand that people wanted something different, right? Then what we saw was that the, the electric car started to solve some problems. If you're a student and you don't have a lot of available money, you want an electric car because you don't want to pay for gas and oil, and you don't want to pay for oil changes, you don't want to pay for maintenance on the vehicle. So if you can ask for a vehicle, you ask for an electric because it gets rid of the monthly cost, right? So you have markets out there, specific customer segments for whom the car actually was a significant advantage. It solved an unmet problem, which is, I don't have cost for the monthly cost of, of operating this vehicle. My operating costs would drop dramatically. Third, we saw that you know, the car comes along We have an unpredictable cost in terms of uh, oil. And so this takes away that, un, that, that is oil going to be, is gasoline going to be $1.50 a gallon or $5.50 a gallon, right? Well, that goes away. So you solve another problem. And then we see people with the um, thinking about the planet, where the planet's headed, ecology, environmentalism. And we know that that movement has gained considerable strength. That's a really long-term movement. It's been around for 35 years. And we see that that very much favors people that would have electric cars because now you're burning, uh, you're not pulling the carbon out of the, out of the ground. On refining it and then burning it again. So you have advantages there because you could use charge your car with solar, wind, and other forms of energy. So we start seeing this piling on. You see this initial very high adoption rates. Then you start seeing explanation specific market segments that have a very good use for it. It solves an unmet need. And then how it starts to tailor into a web of a web-like scenario where it's supported by other trends. In the case of electric car, the, the unreliability of, of oil, petroleum, the pricing of it, and uh, people's move towards ecology. That's very well said. Uh, let me ask this. Does a fad graduate to become a trend, or does a trend is a trend just born by itself? Well, 
a fad, I call it a fad inherently because, again, it lacks that underlying solving of a problem. But there's a specific problem, a growing problem. So, you know, it, it, as the world is shifting, as needs are changing, you have this, uh, an unmet need is born. Then that, as you start to meet that, it goes from an unmet need to an undermet need to then we have solutions, okay? So what we're looking for is, as I see this happening, as I see this being used, is that need going to grow? And is it growing in a way that's going to be difficult to solve the problem? So in the case of, for example, uh, shortages of, of oil, um, you know, that's a short-term problem caused by the pandemic, all right, so that's just a fad that that shortage is a is born of the pandemic. The major suppliers of petroleum around the world aren't quite sure what future demand is going to be. They can't quite agree on how many barrels each country should pump in the OPEC plus environment, for example. And so you see this. Well, you know, let's just kind of let it. Um, we'll argue about it now. Prices may go up. Well, what happens though is as prices of petroleum products go up, you encourage people to use alternatives. You know, when, when, when gasoline is $1.50 a gallon, it's easier for a college or student or for a 30-year-old to buy a petroleum car. But if it's $5.50 a gallon, it's easier for them to start thinking about buying an electric car, right? right? So you actually, by letting the price go up, you compound the downside problem, which means that's what a fad does. The more a fad it grows, the more likely it will collapse, so that's what we're seeing happening in oil right now. Same thing with semiconductors. We still have a shortage of semiconductors because we'd streamlined the supply chains to where we had uh, the number of uh, semiconductor manufacturing facilities were concentrated in, in certain specific Asian markets. Well, that was an uh, okay way to build it out. But as we've reached maturity, we've started to say the advantages of scale of that concentrated manufacturing are very small. We could have almost the same cost uh, ability by having manufacturing plants in other locations. And if it gives me a risk in my supply chain or it gives me a national defense risk, you start saying the trade-off isn't worth it. So now you start saying, okay, that's why that's a fad. It won't continue to be a problem supplying semiconductors because there's multiple solutions to meet the need. It's a short-term undermet need, but not a long-term unmet need. There's multiple solutions to that, so we know that that's going to be a fad. I'm reminded of, of this is a little, little of a random side, but it has to do a little bit uh, on how a, a business owner um, can sort of test and understand uh, if they're really in the right place. And there's a kind of a famous quote uh, that was uh, given by a guy named Dan Burke to Bob Iger. Are you familiar with the quote? No, go ahead. So it says, avoid getting into the business of manufacturing trombone oil. <laughs> right? So the idea here is that you may become the best manufacturer of that of oil for trombones, right? But in the end, how big is that market? It's only you know maybe a fifty-five gallon drum for the entire world that's needed for trombone oil. So, yeah. Um, you know, in the case of uh, of these trends, if there's a business owner that's standing on the edge right now of whether or not they should go in one direction or another, how do they know that something? that is a trend is going to pay off in their business. And I always look for underlying trends or additional trends, supportive trends that develop a scenario. The scenario is not built on one trend. It's built on multiple trends that allow you to see an alternative, different future. Okay, so let's take, for example, um, how people work. Right now, there's a lot of debate. Are people going to go back to the office? Or are they not going to go back to the office? And earlier today, Manny shared with me some information about, I think it was in Iceland where the, a lot of the, the uh, uh, companies were going to four-day work weeks. Does I have that right? Correct, yes. 
And then I've read a bit about this in the United States. Well, we have a demographic problem in the United States, and we have a demographic problem in Iceland and in a lot of countries where we have an aging population. So for many, many years, we've been in a situation where there's all these young people coming up, and the employer could sit there and say, I'm going to abuse you, because if you don't want to do it my way, get your butt out the door, I'll just hire somebody to fill that job. That has switched, and that demographic switch has been coming. It's been very foreseeable that we've aged the population in the United States and other places. But what, what you need often is you need that punctuated equilibrium. Remember, I always tell you that these trends are coming along, and then they, boom, they change in a big way. In this case, the pandemic happened. When the pandemic happened, a lot of these people that were not being paid well, that were being abused in their job, not being treated well, they, they went home. And they were working from home or they were not working at all, right? And now the employers are coming back saying, okay, I want to go back to my old abusive ways. I want to pay you a minimum wage of seven and a quarter an hour. I want you to come into the office. I want you to do this stuff. And they're saying, you know what? I don't have to do that. I've now realized that there's so many people retiring. There's so many people going out of the workforce permanently that there's a shortage of skilled workers. There's even a shortage of unskilled workers in a lot of countries because of a lack of immigration. U.S., Japan, China, there's no immigration. Even unskilled workers are in short supply. And they're, they're not collecting together in old-fashioned unions. They don't have to. All they have to say is, I'm not going to come to work. If you want my work, you're going to have to pay attention to what I want. And I think I can get my 40 hours in or however many hours I want to work in four days. They say I can get just as much productivity done working in four days, three from home, one in the office as I did before. And as an employer, you better listen. Because it's that underlying demographic trend that supports this, these other workplace trends that are happening. Now, on top of that, the workplace trends towards the shorter work, the shorter work day, shorter work week, and more from home are supported by technology. You have a technology trend that makes it mm, somewhat seamless, maybe not perfect, but seamless that we can operate without having to go to an office. We can, and 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 the third thing is that we've shifted from brawn economy. In other words, how do I grow food? That's very much brawn economy. To how do I get things done in a factory, brawn economy, to a knowledge economy. Now it's really what's going on in my brain. Is my brain more effective when I'm sitting in an office? And do I switch my brain off when I'm not in the office? And what we know is if you're a programmer or you're a knowledge worker thinking about how to sell more product, how to run better campaigns, marketing campaigns, these kinds of things, it's your, 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 the back of your brain, you know, that, that that's continues to work on these problems. So people are like, why do I have to think of this as a constrained world? Because you know what? On Saturday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I might be at a football game, but I'm probably got in the back of my mind, I'm still working on that problem. You know, I woke up this morning at 4 a.m. because suddenly it dawned on me. Uh, a, a question that I've been pondering for three days came to me at 4 o'clock in the morning right. while I was asleep. You know, so that's why we have to, if we look at how these, these trends are developing, you have these big trends like demographics, and they start to feed into these workplace trends, and they're supported by trends like technology, then you start to see, that, well, the scenario, the more likely scenario going forward is very much that workers will have a much bigger say in what they've had than they've had for the last 30 years, and they're going to drive us towards these kinds of behaviors. Four-day work weeks, work from home, that yeah, sort of thing. Exactly. I've had uh, three separate... Uh, contacts, friends of mine, associates of mine over the past month, reach out to me. You know, one of the things I do, Adam, is, as you understand how I operate, is I, I really like to nurture my network. I call people that I know, and it's not a, necessarily self-serving directly. I mean, in the end, it kind of is, but I just want to know how they're doing. What's going on? How's your business? How, how are things with the kids? How are things with the wife, with the husband, whatever? And so I've gotten three different phone calls from people 
saying, hey, Manny, I know you're in this in this innovation world. Um, I'm working. I've been asked to come to go back to the office. I don't want to do it. I want to uh, talk to my boss about how can I stay in the office or stay at home and not go into the office. That was one phone call. Had one phone call regarding a person who is uh, in a in a kind of a corporate job, is, was working from home for a while during the pandemic, and now is being asked to come back to the office. And uh, they don't want to lose their their uh, seniority, but they recognize that their value could be higher if they were in the open market and not with the corporate job. Yep. They're afraid. They're afraid about the insurance situation. They're afraid about uh, how they're going to add to the retirement savings plan and all that. So, and then the, th the third person was just asking more general questions about some of the laws regarding, uh, you know, working from home versus, if, uh, you know, working at the corporate office and all that. So it's just interesting that people are really looking at that as the next step. And like you said, employers need to start paying attention to that. Employers need to understand that, look, if one of your star employees decides they want to become a, a 1099 contractor, that you, before you, you just you know, tell them to go away, you should really consider it because that's where things are moving. That is a, a trend that will continue to grow. And matter of fact, like you said, if there's a way to, uh, to, so they can add higher value by working less, why not pay them for results instead of uh, for their time? You know, we used to have that back, you go back 100 years ago, we had what we called piecework. In other words, if you went to a job and you were to make uh, nails, you got paid so much money per 100 pounds of nails that you made. Or if you were to um, uh, collect cotton, you got so much money per bag of cotton that you brought in. And that was piecework, and that was how people got paid. And so it was directly tied to your productivity. But it was the, the rise of the factory. And in the factory environment, it was really, we want to get so many cars out at the end of the day. If somebody works fast and somebody works slow, the factory doesn't work well, right? And so what you have is everybody needs to work at the same pace so that we can we know we're going to make a thousand cars today or we're going to make a thousand telephones today or whatever the device is and so that caused us to get away from piecework and towards pay by the hour but that was all related to industrial automation and that there's still environments in which industrial automation are important but that's even very small now with the rise of robots right most of that right. stuff that kind of thing that was that that form of manufacturing industrial automation is becoming very much robotic oriented and controlled by artificial intelligence devices you know uh, machine learning devices. It's, so we're back again to where this whole idea of peace pay makes a lot of sense. So instead of saying, hey, I want to pay you uh, $80,000 a year to be my marketing director, if you could figure out to say, I want to do five campaigns a year. I want each campaign to include these four components. I want to get placed in this many you know, newspapers. I want to do this. I want to generate this many ads. I want to spend this much in budgeting. And you just set up all the criteria and say, every time you achieve one of these criteria, you get paid. That way, yeah. people would go back to the peace basis and tell you, you get a lot more happiness out of the employee because they can directly tie their pay to their work, and you'll get more happiness because you're going to get results directly tied to the amount you paid. So this sloppy sort of, I just pay you by the hour, come to work, and let me abuse you, which is a lot of what employment was for a long time, yeah. really doesn't fit the future. It doesn't fit the knowledge economy. It doesn't fit where we're going with gig work. And if you don't understand that trend and get with that trend, you're going to be left behind because those who do are going to be more successful. I'm going to, I'm going to stump you with a, potentially another question here. Uh, do you know the name Charles Steinmetz? Not off the top of my head, I do not. Also referred to as the Wizard of Schenectady. So okay. <laughs> this is super esoteric, but I figured I'd, uh, I heard this 
story, and I kind of fell in love with it uh, many, many, many years ago. So back in the day, uh, uh, there was a uh, an auto plant back in the 20s, uh, 1920s. There was an auto plant that Henry Ford had, and they had a big GE generator that was that had some issues. It was, it was vibrating, and they, they really couldn't figure out what the problem was. So they brought in this fabled wizard of Schenectady, uh, Steinmetz. He came in, uh, and he spent a few hours looking at the entire situation. He was uh, an expert in vibration, mathematics, electronics. I mean, the guy was a uh, renaissance man of, of the time. So he spent some time looking at this generator. He, uh, he went up to a certain part of the generator. He drew an X on the generator with a piece of chalk. And he said, drill a hole right here. And he walked away. Well, they did it, and it fixed the problem. <laughs> he, sent a, he sent a bill to Henry Ford, okay? And the bill was for $10,000. So, of course, back in the day, that was a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, of course, yeah, and, of course, Henry Ford said, what? You mean you're charging me $10,000 to, uh, to, to tell me where to drill a hole in my, in my giant, uh, you know, a GE generator? And his invoice, he goes, I, I, need, I, I demand to see uh, an itemized invoice. So uh, the guy said, all right. He wrote it all out. It says, making a chalk mark on the generator, $1. Knowing where to make it, 999 or 9,999. <laughs> exactly. So it shows you the value, right? That people have this perceived value of what an hourly worker can generate, but it's if you shift your mindset to think about more about results, then all that stuff kind of goes by the wayside and you're actually, like you said earlier, able to do more with less. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so I, I think our, a lot of times our audience just doesn't spend enough time thinking about what they see in the news. So, for example, right now you've got uh, in, in Hong Kong this weekend, we have a problem where the ride sharing app there's called Didi. We use Uber and the, the Hong Kong Chinese are making it illegal. They don't like that app because it gets in the way of them tracking movement. Uh, they've also got this thing in China called doxing where they come in and they say to somebody who's got a server, give me all the information you have about you know one of the people on, that, that you've been doing business with. And of course that in America with today's invasion of privacy. Well, they're doing that in Hong Kong right now. So you look at that and say, well, what's going to happen? Well, it's pretty clear what's going to happen. The Chinese are going to make Hong Kong exactly the same way mainland is. And you might say, I love Hong Kong. It's got this long history. You know, it was British territory. It's been the, the gateway to China. Don't let all that history make any difference to you. The Chinese have a plan. They had their 100th anniversary of the Chinese party this weekend, uh, or it was at the end of last week. And they intend to take over the world their way. And it's not the way we do things. It's not a democracy in China. They don't vote. <laughs> they don't have privacy laws. They don't have the things we do. They are making their plan based on the, the belt and suspenders program that they're uh, running around. No, I got that wrong. That's not the right name. I'm trying to remember. Belt and Road. Belt and Road program where they're making investments in, in, in uh, third world countries to gain favor. They, uh, but they do it in a very controlled way. And so when, you, when you're reading the headlines, you need to think about this stuff. And don't let the past, okay, this is where Hong Kong was. Yes, those are tall skyscrapers. Yes, that's a lot of people. And the reality is those people, most of them cannot leave Hong Kong. They have nowhere else they can go. They don't have the money to go anywhere else. Is, is there going to be some kind of compassion born of the Chinese to say, we should stop and let you done, do things the way you've done them before? No, that's not the trend. That's not the way the Chinese have operated for the last 75 years. 
So I think it's really important that people get, you know, look at the headlines, thinking about what's likely to happen, where it will happen, and then make their investments. You know, we recently had the fellows that have the small mushroom business. I love that kind of business because what we're seeing, again, in agriculture, the giant farms where we grow millions of heads of lettuce in San Fernando Valley and then we ship them all across the world is being displaced by small farms, vertical farms, um, um, uh, hydro farms, you know, where it's water done in a... Hydroponics. Yeah, hydroponics done in an old worn-out Target building. That's the decentralized approach, right, where I can make it locally, have it locally. I don't have to ship it. Now, instead of growing things for to make sure they'll last for nine days in the truck, I can say it's all going to be consumed in 48 hours. I'll grow it to be fresher and used in a fresher way. And then why do I say that's going to be good? Because we're decentralizing everything. Yes. We went to where we thought scale was everything, so we're going to have giant nuclear power plants. We have to have giant you know, electric production plants. We're starting to realize, well, you don't need that. You could be making... You know, uh, electricity on people's roofs. You could be making it with windmills. You can decentralize it. You reduce the number of wires you need. Scale isn't as important as it used to be. So look at how these trends overlap on one another, and you start to see them repeat. And then that can help you say, where where should I be placing my bets? Where should I be uh, taking my business? Yeah, people uh, really need to understand and, and find a way to remove the nostalgia, the romance of something and really look at where things are going. I mean, everybody loves the idea of Disneyland and Disney World, amusement parks. Everybody loves the idea of going to the movies, getting a big bucket of popcorn, eating a hot dog and all that, seeing the latest and greatest. But the reality is, at least with the movie theaters, they're, they're, no, they're a relic. They have, they have shifted from being mainstream to being a relic. And the sooner you understand it, the sooner you adopt that, the sooner you can actually move on to the next thing. Uh, we've talked about it in, in kind of a joking manner, uh, how, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson might be the last ever superstar, because now you're, instead of having one Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you're going to have a dozen smaller YouTube people, stars, that are going to hit different demographics, that are going to hit the, the, the kids in, uh, you know, in Asia or the kids in Mexico or whatever. It's just going to be way different. Uh, so, yeah, this has been very good, Adam. And uh, I guess I have just one final question. Uh, and then we'll we'll close for uh, for the day. Uh, what do you think about uh, podcasts? Are they trends or are they a fad? Well, I think the technology that we're using in podcasts are definitely a trend. Um, I personally believe that the like for example education, which was you know uh, the way we've done it historically, get everybody in town into the same school building and classroom, teachers stand there for six hours. At, that process is a very industrial-oriented process. Think about podcast technology as a way to be educated. We see today people working, like you and I, we go watch podcasts to educate ourselves when we used to read books. You know, um, it doesn't mean books are obsolete, but I'm just saying that that's, you know, you can, we're going to see a lot of, of education expand that way. You know, uh, I've been in auto repair shops where I've seen the mechanics actually pull down videos to look at videos because they know what the problem is and they can watch an expert undertake, you know, the, the work that has to be done to solve that problem on the automobile or how to do a diagnostic on an automobile. So this technology is here to stay for quite a long time. Uh, the, uh, the podcast depends on the application and how you want to use it. I think these educational applications are going to continue. I think for entertainment, they will continue as well. Right now, we still rely a lot on, say, a Netflix-produced show. Um, it's going to get down to the production qualities. Are we going to have people start to be able to think in terms of multi-episodes, you know, a story that crosses six or eight episodes, and then be able to get some friends to help uh, cast it, 
do some quality writing for it. And then the technologies are certainly to take the, the video. I mean, that we have. So all the underlying pieces are there. If you will coordinate towards using a podcast platform, you could compete with Netflix or you could compete with any broadcast uh, station in terms of putting it out. And some people are trying today and they're getting an audience for it. And so sure. I think that this is going to continue to head down that direction. Podcasts are certainly not a fad. They're a trend. But now I think in this one, it's a technology. We have to think about all the applications and which of those applications are going to be the biggest as we go down the road. Excellent. Excellent. Well, if anybody in the audience uh, wants to learn more about how to grow their business, certainly we have our course, uh, Think Innovation. And uh, I also invite uh, our audience to send us an email if you have any questions about whether or not your business is along a trend or a fad. We'd be happy to take a look at it and, uh, and maybe even bring it on our show. So email me at manny at sparkpointers.com or adam at sparkpointers.com. So with that, Adam, as I think always, folks, we should be thinking about, we just posted up the event on July 1st. We had a one-hour event where people came in and asked questions. We're going to replicate that event again in the future. People should stop by our website and take a look at the event, which is the open Q&A. It was a lot of fun. I think people enjoy listening to it. And think about signing on to the next one. Excellent. That's an excellent reminder. Thank you very much, Adam, and we'll be talking to you next week. Cheers. Thank you.